0: Welcome to the Murky Middle on the Literary Lens podcast. This is Lane Haymont with colleagues Jackie Lipton and Ann Rose. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the art of the middle ground. Um, you know, so what challenges specifically midlist authors face in getting their work noticed? Mm. Um, Midlist authors switching agents, you know, uh, looking for new agents, navigating the publishing maze from a midlist perspective. Um, So let's get to it.
1: Shall we start with changing agents? Because I know there's been a lot of... Uh, social media chat about people who've either had to move agents because someone's left the business or, you know, someone's agent not being the best fit for whatever they're trying to do next. And that just seems to me, not a bad place to start.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I also think um, people who have offers on the table who are now looking for an agent to negotiate that offer. because. We just ran into that. Um, so, Anne, what do you think? Have you ever been the next agent, quote unquote?
2: I am the third agent for a couple. Ooh. Yeah, for one of my newest clients, I'm their third agent. So, so yeah, I, I've I've been there. So. <laughs> well,
0: I'm curious how you get approached by someone who has had numerous agents. Is it a query, a typical query, or is it, say, from a friend?
2: So it's been both. So I have a couple clients who have had an agent before, and I'm their second agent, and they just queried me. Um, One of my clients, uh, I found them through, it was like DivPit, I think it was at the time. Um, So I had liked a post, and they queried me, and I just happened to be their second agent Um, and we sold the project. So, yay! So that was good. But um, the last one that I just signed was through a referral. So so this person knew one of my other clients and my other clients basically called me. was like, you have to talk to this person. They'd be amazing. You're going to love them. And then they queried me. Same thing. They sent a query and I read their work and the rest is history.
0: I just want to remind people: as an agency, we don't poach. No. So I've had authors approach me while they have agents, and I say, "Listen, you got to talk to your agent first, because I'm not going to be the a-hole."
1: Yeah, I've I've done that a few times myself. Where it's it's a really tough situation because you know if you're an author and you know something isn't quite right maybe with the author agent relationship but you're not sure if it's the right time for a move uh you know and I will have people approach me and say hey I'm still with this agent but would you read and that's because we don't poach I'm always happy to sort of give people advice and and get on a call and say well what's wrong like what's not working maybe you should talk to your agent and say this or that or the other um but it you know it is unethical and most most agents, those complying with codes of conduct, should not be really formally looking at a query from someone who is already agented by someone else and has not left that prior agent.
0: I like how you said the word should, because that's oh. important, because yes. I think a lot of agents and you know, that may be an unpopular opinion. Even agencies, big agencies who say they don't poach, they love to poach.
2: I have actually, I know of a couple clients who have told me that agents have slipped into their private messages or have emailed them directly. Um, so I don't know. I If I'm going to talk to another author that is not my client. I do it in the public space. So like I see them on Twitter, I'll write a comment there, that kind of thing. But I I like to keep conversations to public spheres because that's that's the space that I think that is more reasonable, right? Like we don't have that relationship. I'm not their agent and I don't ever want to try to cross that boundary. So that's just how I like to handle it.
1: That's actually really cool because it's unambiguous then. There's, you know if if you start emailing with someone or you have a conversation with someone maybe it gets a little more ambiguous than if you just talk in the public space and say here's what you might consider doing
2: yeah i try well i mean no one's really asked me i just like just interacting cuz i like i love the author community i like to build relationships i like to have fun with them you know I, I i respond to lots of twitter posts all the time random things you know what's your favorite pajama pants i don't know i'm i'm probably going to throw in my two cents right but um <laughs> But yeah, but I, I don't, I just, I try to keep it in in the public space. And if it's like, a, if it's a book, if it's an announcement of a book, that's really great, you know, that I think is great. I'll, and they post on Twitter, like I'll respond right there. Like, I'm not going to slide into their DMs like, oh, this sounds amazing. You know, yeah. and I've, or I'll email their editor and be like, hey, you know, this sounds awesome. I think this is a great book. Congratulations, y'all. This is fabulous. But that's, that's where I like to draw the line. And that's me.
0: It's yeah. interesting that you mentioned announcements because I know agents Colleagues who have stopped making announcements on Publishers Marketplace because there's a certain kind of agent that will scour Publishers mm-hmm. Marketplace, interesting see fantastic deals, and reach out to authors.
1: Well, given that we're talking about what agents shouldn't do, and I guess what authors shouldn't do, maybe we should think about what one should do. So, yeah. When you So if you are an author and you're thinking, oh, look, you know, it's not working with the agent or if the agent has said, I really don't know how to place this, maybe you should look for another agent. And I wanted to throw out there because this comes up a lot, um, you know, sometimes it is the case that the project that the agent signed you on, fine, it sells, it doesn't sell, whatever, Mm -hmm. but the next set of projects isn't a good fit. The agent doesn't have a vision for them or the agent doesn't see the client's vision, that happens a lot. And it's kind of, I mean, in some ways it's weird to me that we're a full service for the life of the author's career business when projects are so subjective. And I always have trouble holding those two things in my mind simultaneously. But I think people, oh, it's really easy for me to say this as an agent, and I know as an author I feel differently, but um you know, when, when that happens and an author says like something terrible about the agent or, um, you know, it, it destroys their self-esteem because the agent, you know, dropped them or the agent had a different vision or whatever. And, you know, honestly, from the business side, that is just business and a good agent will not string you along. A good agent will say, look, I I don't have a good idea for what to do with this. Do you have anything else or maybe you want to look for other representation? And I don't think that's a terrible thing because I think it's worse being with an agent where you're desperately trying to find something for them to sell, but you have a project you love that they won't work on. I mean, it's much better then to say, "Okay, well maybe this time to part ways and I'll 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 query this and like Anne, I've had people query me in that circumstance. And I've had referrals from other clients and um, other writing friends who've said, Hey, this person is looking for a new agent. And that's part of the business. That's always fine with me.
0: So have you ever, cause I tell clients, you know, when they're working on the next book, if something isn't going to work, I say, run it by me, yeah. get me some stuff. Yeah. I, I, am I, unusual in doing that because I've had clients come with, I have this awesome book. I love it. And it's something that I know for a fact, no one is going to buy because I've spent the last five weeks in meetings with editors saying, oh no, I'm sick of this. I don't want that.
2: Yeah I mean, I- Sorry, go ahead. Anne. I was just going to say that generally speaking for me and the way I work with my clients is we, I signed them on for a project. We go out with that project. And when that project is gone, like we're already talking about next project. And so I like to have that conversation early on, like, what are your ideas? What are you thinking? How are we going to, you know, what is your time frame? Like how long is this going to take you to work on that kind of thing? Because all of those things are going to factor into the later on marketability of whatever the project is going to be. So we're having those conversations super early. So it's not like they're coming, they're writing an 80,000 word book and then Sending it to me, and I'm like, yeah, I don't really know what to do with this. Like, I'm I'm we I try to make it so we're having a conversation along the way. So um, I mean, I do, we were just in our meeting, obviously. And I have I did have the situation where my client was like, Oh, by the way, I just wrote this entire book here. And I was really, really nervous because we had never talked about it. It was completely out of their genre, like everything. Luckily, it was it's amazing. I'm really excited about it. We're gonna go out with it. Um, so it worked out really really well but some in those cases it can be it's like a little panic inducing at first right like oh i don't know what i'm going to what is this i don't know what this is you know so i always like to have the conversation early
1: yeah i i agree i even you know i think we all do this when you sign a client you know i'll say what else have you got mm-hmm. can you know what just send me some ideas or when you're on the call you talk about what else they have you know, to see if you're a good fit. Because, for example, at the moment, and I put this in my wish list this January, and last fall, too, I'm really full with with picture books, I have too many picture book authors, or not too many, I have enough, you know, I can't really take on more, because they'll compete with my current clients. So if someone sends me a middle grade, but really, they're going to write mainly picture books, I need to know that upfront, because I'm not going to be the best agent for that. And, you know, it's important to be having those conversations. I did want to also make a note, and maybe Lane can weigh in on this one. Uh, It can be a little different with nonfiction because with nonfiction, um, you know, sometimes the author is writing a book because it's part of an existing platform and it's not really clear if there'll be a second book or if there'll be a market for a second book depending on how the platform develops. So like, I don't know if you want to say anything about that, Lane.
0: Yeah, that's, Something I've run into where I had an author, he wrote an amazing book. It it did really well. Lots of sales. Publisher said, hey, we want a second book. Author says, I'm done. I wrote my book. That's my one book. He has a great platform, could easily publish another book, obviously, but just doesn't want to, has nothing else to say. And I think that's the challenge of, nonfiction publishing. I think there are two separate kinds of authors. I think there's authors like Robin George Andrews, who is going to publish book after book after book because he has so much to say. There's so much science developing. Um, And then there's authors who authors who write memoirs. They wrote their memoir and they're done for the day. You know, sometimes they'll go on and do second memoirs. Roxane Gay has a number of memoirs, but other times, like Harper Lee, she wrote a book and she was done. So I think it's important to have that conversation with your agent beforehand, before signing, maybe at the, you know, the call, um, And I've learned to have that conversation, even with my authors who write fiction, to say, what else are you working on? Is this a one and done? Um, And asking about timelines, because some authors take three years to write a book and, you know, an editor may express interest. And three years down the line, they're now working at the circus because it pays more money. I don't know if it actually pays more money, but, you know, it could.
1: Well, I guess if you listen to what we were saying about advances in last week's podcast, you can do a cost-benefit calculation to see if working for the circus actually is a better cost-benefit proposition.
2: Right. Also, I'll just throw it out there. Like, I've started including a, um, a, in one of my presentations that I do for conferences is, you know, when is it time to break up? Like, so I have that a, a whole thing. We probably could do a whole episode on, like, like the reasons, like, why it would be a good time to break up with an agent. Um, but. I've started including that in one of my presentations just to kind of help with that process, right? To know when, when it's good. Give us your top three. Well, I haven't looked at that presentation in like three months, Jackie. Right now, make people,
0: it up. You should be commenting below whether they want us to do an episode on breaking yeah. up with your agent, because uh, I've gotten broken up with and I've broken up with people and it's a weird uncomfortable thing to say hey welcome to dumpsville population you but to say it politely
2: yeah do, do you want me to give maybe one or two reasons i can probably figure yeah, it out absolutely. yes please number one reason is communication but i think that that should be something that you talk about ahead of time right so if you're having an issue if you feel like you can't go to your agent to talk to them about your career about um you know, your, whatever it is that you're nervous about in, in your career, your submission, whatever it is, if you have a feeling that you just can't talk to them. I had a really good friend of mine who was like, yeah, I, I don't know. If I email my agent, she takes six months to respond to me. And I'm just like, what are you doing? Like, this is, this is not a benefit to your relationship. If it takes your agent six months to respond to an email, like that's not good. Like that's not beneficial to you. Like I would say have a conversation with them though, first, like, Hey, can we try to fix our communication style? Is there a way that I can, you know, if I have a quick question that I could get it addressed in a more timely manner. I just think that there's communication. Number one.
0: Devil's advocate because our server, maybe it's just my email. It's awful. Emails go missing. Um, Sometimes I I miss an email because you know, My email has, I don't know, 50,000. And you can't keep track of them all. So things do fall through the cracks. And I hate that. And it's absolutely wrong. But I would hate to get fired by one of my top clients because I missed an email for a week or two.
2: Right. No, but what I'm saying is you first have a conversation. So like, I'm pretty sure that when you're getting an, even if you miss an email, if your client was to email you a week later and be like, Hey, you know, did you get a chance to look at this email? You'd be like, Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I I didn't see it. But it's it's when you can't even have those conversations because you're not even getting a response from your agent at all. So if I miss an email, my client would probably text me and be like, Hey, Ann, are you dead? And I'd just be like, Oh my gosh, you know, I'll check my spam. I don't know what happened. So it's pretty much my rule of thumb of like I don't respond within twenty four hours, I'm probably dead. That's it. I'm probably well, dead. That's
0: good to know. That's but, good but, to it's know.
2: Interesting.
0: I, yeah. Yeah. And I, I it sounds like the basics of it is communication, being able to have that communication. It, and it's trust, being able to trust that you can tell your agent, hey, this is bothering me.
2: Yes hundred percent communication and trust. They have to go hand in hand, right? Like, so if you're not getting a response from your agent, right. And you wait a week, you know, do you trust them that you can email again? And they're not going to be like, why are you emailing?" You know, yeah, whatever it, it may be. Cause I do know that there's auth- I have lots of author friends. We all have author friends, right. That are like, you know, I just, I, I don't want to, I don't want to be a pest. I don't want to, you know, add to the work. I'm like, your career but you got you to gotta get in there you got
1: to yeah it's get interesting it. i i sort of want to play devil's advocate a little bit too and i'm just thinking of a case i read years ago when i was writing a law review article about the fiduciary duties in the Author agent relationship, and there's 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 emails and there's emails because like we do every so much via email now. And what I always find is that the clients who don't want to be a pest, and so then they don't email you about something important, and then clients who um, sort of want to chat or whatever and and have a conversation. And I think like most of my current client list sort of understands that I'll be quicker with. A work related email or a time sensitive email than a hey, how are you doing? How was the holidays sort of thing? But I was thinking of this one case, and I'm honestly, the thing I was writing about was why judges tend to look at the contract, author agent contract, rather than the equitable fiduciary duty. So that's just the legal thing, why I was looking at this. But part of the evidence in this one case was that the agent must have been in breach of their fiduciary duty because the client sent them like 700 emails over the course of X many years and the agent only sent 300 emails back. And so that shows that the agent was breaching the I mean, that was an argument. It was not accepted in the case. But it's like, but if you don't know what the 700 emails were about, what the 300 emails were about. You have no idea what, you know, Anne is talking about communication, not the agent will respond in five minutes to every email you send. Well, you might, but it's like, you know, there is prioritization going on. As
2: Emails, like text messages, you know, like I will sometimes (laughs) just shoot off like, hey, what's up? Thinking about going to get tacos. Uh, Do you want to go get tacos with me? And it's like, those are three texts. That's not one text. That's three texts, right? So is that email that they're sending or? Right, so if
1: it's if yeah, and I would like I would love to come down to Texas and have some tacos with you, actually. So we'll Ooh. let's get that on the calendar.
2: That. Right. We have that thing, and when that film maybe comes out, that we're supposed to do that thing. Well, we can't really talk about it yet, but you know what I'm talking about.
0: We'll talk about it in the bonus episode because we can okay. say whatever we want there. We'll there be- is a
2: film. There is a film. Yes. Yeah,
0: we'll talk about all the movies we have coming up, all that jazz. Excellent. Um, so it's interesting about emails because I think some people respond.
2: Because you need me to teach you how to, to do your inbox, right? Isn't that what we said? I was going to show you how to do your inbox.
0: Yes, I think it was because my inbox is like 30,000 deep and 12,
2: 12 inbox.
0: How do you do that? How do you do that? I don't want to get off topic, but let's get off topic a bit. And how do you do that?
2: It is just brutal organization. So it's really hard to come into it if if you're starting at thirty thousand. But like, what if you can implement it at, from the beginning? It's mm-hmm. really easy to maintain. So you and I will get together and we will okay. we will clean okay. up your inbox at some point. But yeah. I have thirty one, if anyone cares.
0: Good job. Oh, geez. Um okay, so for mid list authors who have a couple books under their belts, mm-hmm. um how do you think they can break out of that? I mean, obviously there's no you know one way that works, but we've all had mid list authors who suddenly pop off. I'm thinking of Silvia Moreno Garcia who had, you know, a number of books under her belt. And then Mexican Gothic came out, and she's a superstar now.
1: Yeah, and and Gabriel Zevin, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, that was huge. And that was, I don't know, her fifth or sixth book.
0: And Brandon Sanderson, I don't think he took off until his 14th book.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I have a client who who... I think would consider herself in that category. And I you know, she she writes in a specialized area. Um, so it's not like bestseller material, but she did win the LA Times Book Award for a YA last year, which is pretty big. Mm-hmm. And You know, she had, I I should know what number manuscript that was for her and I don't because I'm not her first agent. I know of her other books. It's at least her fourth or fifth uh, book, the original book that she wrote. She writes a lot in translation as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And one thing she did, so part of it was new agent, you know, and starting afresh with just a new pair. Of, and that's nothing happened with her, her prior agent retired. And I know really? her and she's lovely. Um, but part of it, I think, was having that time to really the manuscript that won the LA Times Book Award, and this is Torch by Lynn miller Lockman. just so I'm plugging her work on the podcast, um, she might not thank me for saying this, but she did have that time between agents to really workshop that thing. I mean, I know she wrote the opening, rewrote the opening chapter, uh, I can't tell you how many times, like over 30 times before she even sent it to me. And when she worked with me before we subbed it, uh, we rewrote the final third a number of times and we really cut it down a good ten, fifteen thousand 15,000 words. So sometimes... I know it doesn't help when you say having the time to really get back to the craft and think about what it is you want to say um sometimes that can be helpful um so that's one thing I'll just throw out there
2: yeah i think i think timing and luck too luck. play a huge role into it so just hitting hitting just right at the right time and when you already have a couple books out, then you have that ability to, well, you hopefully have the ability to to have that little, you know, you have the editor connection. Like maybe they want to buy another book from you so you can kind of build from it. So you can maybe get it out there just a little touch quicker. And so.
0: And I, I hate to jump in and say what I'm about to say because I don't want clients whose books haven't sold to call me up after this and say you're fired. But I think sometimes an agent change can make all the difference. Yeah, it's um,
2: a who you're working with. Right, yeah.
0: So, for example, I had a, someone I offered representation to on a nonfiction, he went somewhere else, and I was like, I bet he's going to come back. Um, so I don't know however long, maybe eight months later, he comes back, says, that agent didn't sell the book. Can you sell the book? I say, let me see, you know, the proposal. Let me see what was sent out. I don't know how much I should be saying this, but whatever. I I saw the proposal. I said, this is why it didn't sell. And this is why I'm going to sell it. So we did a fantastic proposal. I love doing nonfiction. They're 30, 60, 70 pages long. We went out and sold it. And now it's under option. Uh it has a writer it has producers uh we're literally going out this week to directors. It's gonna be a fantastic t v show, and it was all just the agent change and
2: well, you not- had a vision right? like you had a vision that that agent didn't have, so yeah which aspect- is why
0: i'm I'm still hoping I'm not gonna get a bunch of emails with the subject line termination after this. But I think
1: people do not fire Lane just because he said that, but but I do think something that authors should know, and probably lots of authors do know this, uh, you know, I've lost a bunch of projects uh, that I offered on last year um, where I had great conversations with the author and at the end of the day another agent had a stronger vision or they felt more comfortable with uh, another agent or whatever, um, you can always go back to that agent. Like in Lane's example, we don't forget you. It's not like we suddenly have amnesia or we suddenly have blacklisted you because you accepted another agent. We, I mean, I saw stuff on Twitter today where agents who didn't get a book were saying we wish all the success to that author. We we don't offer unless we love what you're doing. And, if, you know, we, we don't wish you ill. We want your agent you signed with to sell the book, but if they don't, we'd, we'd love to hear from you again. And that's very common. So don't ever feel that you can't go back to an agent who offered who you didn't take the offer.
0: And hopefully, this doesn't come across ominous or threatening, but no. I mean, we all know everyone. We all know other agents. You know, someone will say, Oh, I went with this agent. I'm like, Oh, I love that agent. You're in good hands. And there's been times where I say, Who's the other offering agent? And they say, this person, I say, go with them. You're fan- they're fantastic. They'll do a great job. They're my friend. I'm stepping back.
1: Yeah, I always think of Shark Tank, which I'm completely addicted to, where they say, hey, Lori's the expert in this space. You should go with her. I'm not going to offer because you're better off with her. And it's the same thing, seriously. It's like we wish everyone well. And, you know, if you have a good offer from a really good agent, who would do a better job than we would. Yay. That's great.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So what do we think about book tours? Um, Mm -hmm. Because lately I've had a lot more clients go out on book tours and I don't know if it's because people are finally getting back from the pandemic or. Um, So what do we think about book tours? Do we think they're, Helpful, because my cousin has done dozens of book tours and says they're not useful. no one comes to book readings.
1: I don't think they necessarily move the needle that much. Um I think you know if you do a huge Barnes and Noble thing and tons of people come and they physically buy the book, okay, so you've sold what fifty more books, maybe, but in the scheme of things. I don't know. I think people get a lot of mileage out of book tours on social media because what's that thing in sales where, you know, a consumer has to see something like four or five times before they hit seven times before they hit the button and buy the thing. So I think it's like maybe two of the times someone comes to the book tour or someone sees a tweet about the, an X about the book tour um but I just I I don't know. I mean, I've I've had authors, um, I guess I've never had a publisher send an author on like one of those big budget book tours, but I've had authors do events that publishers have organized. Um, and in KidLit, I think some of the big, like the ALA, you know, big conference that can maybe move the needle on school and library sales.
2: I anyway. think that when it comes to book tours, it's it's about making the connections. So I think that's more of what it's about. Like, who can you talk to while you're there uh, at these tours? Like, are you talking to the booksellers? Are you getting a chance to go to, you know, maybe the local high school and and talk to the librarian? Or or, or can you set up meetings in advance if you know that you're going to a specific place? You know, if you're going to LA, can you talk with producers while you're there? Like, so how can you utilize the travel in, in the most beneficial way to get the most exposure while you're there and who can you talk to while you're there. So yeah, maybe you sell 50 books, maybe you don't, but maybe you also meet the coordinator for school visits while you're yeah. there. And so now you're going to have in next year they've got you lined up for 10 school visits and you're coming out and all the schools are passing out those little flyers like do you want to buy a book. So really it's it's not necessarily about the the immediate like result of it, I think it's it's about like building those relationships and, and having more of like a long a long term burn, if that makes sense.
0: Yep. Yeah. So what I've found and I have nothing, no evidence I mean no e- scientific evidence to back this up. I I think events like at festivals mm-hmm. or libraries, I think those work much better than outright book signings.
1: Yeah. yep.
0: Because I've gone to client book signings, even in LA, even where big wig producers, studio heads show up. And like you said, they sell a few books, but I think it's really about the connections.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: And I hate to say being on social media.
2: Well, yeah, but also being at those big places, you're going to talk to, people who are very interested in like, you know, your library session, you're talking to a bunch of librarians. you're not just talking to one, right. You you have that ability to like really get yourself out there and talk to a lot of people at once. So those, those big ones are always really, really helpful.
1: And I would say I'm always going to plug stuff for nonfiction. You know, if, if you're a nonfiction author and you do an event in your specialty like you know i write about legal stuff I, so when i talk to a group of lawyers or citizens who are interested in the legal side of something i'm so i'm talking to a specialty group i might sell some books there but that gets my word the word out about the book to other people who would actually buy it as opposed to hey i'm here in the bookstore and someone's reading from their book Um, So I think nonfiction, again, can be a little different because there's a lot of affinity organizations you end up talking to that, again, it's networking, right? So you're connecting with people who are interested in the thing you are talking about. Um, So I think it's worth being out there and doing stuff, but I think it's more for the networking on both sides, on the fiction and the nonfiction side.
0: Yeah, the more we talk about the more I think those kind of events are more useful for the network it's sort of like word of mouth
1: mm-hmm. yeah. you know
0: they still say the best marketing is word of mouth and that really is it you know jenny keeper not to plug her again but i'm gonna plug her again the this wretched valley comes out january 16th and there's just a ton of word of mouth um we got the files of all the social media blurb assets today and there's like 30 40 50 of them and I had no idea it had so many blurbs I knew some of the big names but then there's names I recognize that I'm like wow we got a endorsement from them there's so many that I can't share them all mm-hmm. some are my two of my favorite authors Ali Wilkes and Al Mokatsu who wrote one of the best books of our generation The Hunger I will always plug that book um and so I, I really think it's word of mouth because Jenny is a debut author.
2: Well, I think it's funny that you say that because I just had a conversation. Obviously, this is not book related. But I had a conversation today with my kids on the car ride home from school. Like a, a teacher was coming out of the school and they were carrying their Stanley cup, right? Like you could you could tell it was the Stanley cup, right? And that was all word of mouth, right? Like the reason why Stanley is like so big right now is because some woman put a video up about her car being completely incinerated by fire, and she picks up her Stanley Cup and goes, and there's still ice in it. And so, I mean, they couldn't have made a better no. commercial than that for that product.
0: <laughs> Stanley Cup? I actually know Stanley Cup, and I know nothing about anything because of social media, because there's some so person I follow who is in love with Stanley cups always talks about Stanley cups, not in a buy Stanley cups, but just like, I love my Stanley cup. And I'm like, Oh, I should go buy a Stanley cup.
2: That's all it takes.
0: Yep. So we are coming to the end of episode two of the murky middle for those who have paid to subscribe to our Patreon We are going to spend the next half hour or so on a bonus episode answering some more writer questions. This has been The Murky Middle on the Literary Lens podcast. Like, subscribe, join. We will see you soon.